You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For October 18th, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. In energy circles, we hear a lot of talk about deep decarbonization these days, but do we really know what we're talking about? On the transportation side, it's pretty straightforward. We need to switch to electric transport, whether it's powering bikes, rickshaws, cars, buses, or trains. But things get considerably murkier when we think about electric heating. There are so many technologies involved in space heating and air conditioning, and apart from builders and architects, not many people really know much about them, let alone which types of heating systems are more energy efficient or cost-effective or clean or even appropriate for a specific application. So quickly, if you had a house on the East Coast that was heated with a boiler running on heating oil and you wanted to replace it with something more efficient that had lower emissions and was more affordable, what would you pick? I bet you didn't have a ready answer to that question. But the best solutions actually lead us into a much more complex subject than merely replacing one type of heater with another. It leads us into a thoughtful consideration of all the elements of a building and how they work together, or don't, to provide us with a healthy and comfortable space. It turns out that, as with so many areas under the energy transition heading, the best solutions are based on integrated design, but few building contractors or architects think or operate that way. And indeed, our very building codes aren't designed to produce those results, as we'll discover, along with a number of other surprising things in this episode. Our guest today is Robert Veen, a registered engineering technologist in building construction technologies and a professional licensee in mechanical engineering. For some 14 years now, Robert has run a not-for-profit website called HealthyHeating.com, which seeks to share non-commercial information and education about heating and cooling and building design, and he has been awarded numerous industry awards for his work on the integration of the building sciences and health sciences, along with related energy issues. He's a frequent public speaker and consultant on many projects, and I hope you'll enjoy this extensive, wide-ranging, and often humorous discussion with him. Then in the news segment, we'll review a new report on the state of the global nuclear industry. Hint, it's not good. A quick survey of some amazing new types of electric vehicles, a big announcement from VW, and another big announcement from Anheuser-Busch. But first, let's geek out with Robert Bean. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Robert, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for having me on, Chris. My pleasure. So your work is focused not just on how to heat buildings efficiently, but on how to take an integrated design approach to space heating, including building science, health science, energy, of course, and exergy efficiency. And, you know, we'll get to exergy in a moment, but I think, strangely enough, I don't think we've actually talked about that on this podcast yet. So just to begin with, you're rather famous for saying design for people and good buildings will follow. Why do you emphasize this integrated design approach? 
because I'm anti-segregated design. <laughs> As if I know what that means. <laughs> so if you, you know, if you look at the world of construction and how buildings are currently built, you know, the owner retains an architect, and then you know a general contractor is awarded the project, and then the general contractor kind of hands out the contracts for the different parts of the building, like people lining up at a soup kitchen with soup bowls and <laughs> nobody talks to anybody. Like everybody's got their own silo. So the electrical people have their silo and the mechanical people have their silo, the yeah. interior design and so on and so forth. And so no one talks to one another and, and that's the segregated design process. And that's sort of the status quo. But when you look at integrated design and there's so many great buildings now that that are around the world that have used integrated design processes. And a few that come to my mind is like the Winnipeg Manitoba Hydro Building or the NRL Building in Colorado or the Bullet Building in Seattle. Those were all integrated design teams. And one of the DNAs for each of those projects had to do with people, you know, design around the needs of the occupant. And primarily the reason, if you look at those three buildings, particularly the one in NRL and the one in Colorado and the one in Manitoba, those are owner-built buildings. So their focus really is on, you know, how can we create indoor environments for our people where they become productive and they have, you know, a healthy existence within the building and it's conducive to learning. And those buildings have completely different outcomes than the projects that have been designed around a segregated design process. So that's why I'm studying that and focusing on that and trying to live that in our own design practice, working with the integrated approaches. Okay. Yeah, I've actually had the privilege of touring that NREL building, and it's it's pretty amazing. Oh. I mean, just the array of technologies that they've brought to bear there in ways that I've never seen anywhere else. And the experience inside the building is really very nice. Yeah, it's funny. You know what? You know, it's kind of like being in an old village where everybody was riding donkeys, and then all of a sudden someone shows up with a horse. <laughs> yeah. And sort of recalibrates your perception of what, what transportation is all about. Well, that's the same thing with the NRL building, as you know. I mean, you go into that structure and it really sort of recalibrates yourself in terms of what buildings really can be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it sounds like what you really like about the integrated design approach is the effect that it has on people. Yeah, certainly people. And then, of course, energy and my focus, well, I have two backgrounds, one in building construction, engineering technology, and the other one in mechanical engineering. So I sort of look at the world from those two lenses. But the last, I guess, almost 14 years now, I've been sort of studying also human physiology and human psychology as it relates to the indoor environment. And when you start huh. to look at these as being pieces of the bigger puzzle. So if you take, let's go back to NRL, right? So that's the picture. That's the picture of the building. That's the picture of the indoor environment. There's an energy picture that, that you also see. Well, that final picture came as a result of someone fitting all the pieces together. And all of those pieces are, you know, the individual professions, but also people that understand how energy affects the creation of that picture. And then how do people also affect that picture as well? So Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get into some of the details then. So first of all, I'm not sure how familiar our audience actually is with all the different kinds of heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, collectively known as HVAC systems. So very briefly, why don't you list them and explain how they work a little bit before we get into the details of various applications? 
Sure. That's a big topic. I mean, I know it's a long list, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I didn't want us to get later in the interview talking about things that people didn't know what they were. Like, what's a heat pump, you know? So Right, right. So you could really sort of break it down into two categories, those that are convection-based systems and then those that are radiant-based systems. And by definition, then, that sort of moves you sort of into the air handling side of things. And then the radiant can be either you know, hydronic or fluid-based or electric. And there's a big difference between the two. So when you look at convective-based systems, you're essentially, I don't want to say ignoring the radiant component, but everything is going to be based on either chilling air or heating air up. And then that, of course, gets distributed into the space via ducts. And the air systems, besides affecting temperature, you can also then use it for, you know, humidification or dehumidification, filtration, which I sort of categorize as decontamination. So the air systems have the capacity to do the decontamination, deodorization, and, you know, humidification or dehumidification. And then they have this ability to also be heated and cooled. And that type of a system ignores one of the biggest components of heat transfer from the human body to the space, and that's the radiant component. And so most of the industry, unfortunately, has been raised on the holy grail that air is the metric. And then reality is that's one-tenth of the metrics that we use for thermal comfort. The human body itself, if you actually look at the split of how it transfers its total energy to the environment, 60% of it is actually radiant. And a lot of people aren't aware of that, but we can see that in buildings where you have bad buildings that are typically conditioned exclusively with air, that you can have a thermostat controlling the 72 degree air temperature, let's say, for example, in heating, but people next to a window or you know an enclosure that's poorly constructed, they still feel cold. And then why they feel cold or cool is because a large part of their energy is being released to the cooler surfaces via radiation. Hmm. So the HVAC systems, you can split them up, convective-based, radiant-based. And when you get into convective-based systems, then now you're talking about furnaces, you're talking about rooftop units, you're talking about air-based heat pumps, you know, fan convectors, PTAC units in hotels and motels, that type of stuff. And again, those are all going to be connected to ducts. Or they could be, you know, like the mini splits, which you can, you know, get an inducted or an unducted version. So collectively, we're talking about, I think, what I normally think of as forced air systems. Correct. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. okay. And then when you get over to the radiant stuff, well, then now you're starting to introduce things like radiant floor heating, radiant walls, radiant ceilings, panel radiators, you know, the radiators, the old cast iron type ones. But you also right. have in some of those systems a convective component as well. Uh, it okay. just depends on on how they're situated. And then you have actually hybrid systems like chilled beams, which have both a radiant component and a convective component to it. Right. The chilled beam system is, I think, the only, or at least as far as I'm aware, it's the only sort of radiant system that actually does cooling, right? No. No. We do a lot of cooling with radiant ceilings and radiant floors. Okay. And this is always an interesting discussion, Chris, because so many people out there that are illiterate in HVAC design, as soon as you start talking about radiant floor cooling, for example, or radiant ceiling cooling, they always jump to this concern about condensation. Uh And as a designer, I mean, we dehumidify a space for thermal comfort. We dehumidify it for respiratory comfort. We dehumidify it to reduce hydrolysis, which is the release of 
say, for example, VOCs into a space as a function of moisture. Huh. We do dehumidification to control microbial, so viruses, bacteria, dust mites, you know, mold spores, these types of things. We control it to reduce degradation to photographs, paintings, these types of things. So we dehumidify a space for you know nine or ten reasons over and above the condensation concern. The condensation concern really is a moot point. If you're actually controlling humidity for all of these far more important reasons, then you never have to worry about the condensation issue with radiant systems. Yeah, I think if you've got condensation, you got a serious problem, right? Like this is <laughs> Yeah. It's well, not something well, you should normally be dealing with. <laughs> no, you shouldn't and you don't want to ignore it either because once yeah. you start to get moisture problems and that in fact that's the biggest issue that we have with buildings is actually moisture damage. You know, we always say to people that a hundred percent of all moisture problems in buildings conditioned exclusively with forced air did not have radiant cooling to blame. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> and, right. And there's far more air-based systems than there are radiant systems, but that's a changing statistic. And that is because they have the same concerns as every other HVAC system. So condensation is agnostic. It doesn't care whether you're a radiant system or an air-based system, if you've got moisture content in the air that is going to come in touch with the cooler surfaces, it's going to condense. And it doesn't matter whether it's ducts or pipes or a radiant panel. Yeah. And well, of course, here in Boulder, I have exactly the opposite problem. I have a forced air system at my house and it's a high elevation, extremely dry climate. And I was miserable when I first moved here because my sinuses were constantly drying up and mm -hmm. my nose was closing down. I couldn't sleep at night until I got a humidifier installed to actually put some moisture into the air. Yeah, uh, But of course, the air conditioner is fighting that. And so is the forced air heater. <laughs> it's yeah. trying to take the condensation out. Yeah, it's in some climates. And we're in Calgary and very much the same as probably your climate. You know, we're, we're essentially in a desert area. Which right. People don't right. think of Canada as having sort of desert areas. They think of Canada as having, you know, lots of water and lots of trees, forests in the mountains. But the reality is where I'm from, we're very much in a very dry climate. So we're humidifying projects. But a lot of the humidity concerns very much as a function of the building performance and higher performing buildings today, like, you know, Passive House or I don't want to use the word lead, but, you know, some of the lead buildings where there is a great care taken into reducing infiltration. These buildings, by their very nature, retain any humidity that's generated within the building. But buildings that leak more than the average bear, as we can say, yeah. then you're seeing that exchange of air. And as a result, with that air going out, also goes out the moisture. So these buildings tend to be drier, in which case you're going to end up having to humidify it. Interesting. Well, I didn't actually want to go on such a long excursion, but that was all fascinating to me. I mean, those are things I hadn't really thought about in that kind of detail. So with that kind of basis established in sort of the different kinds of HVAC systems, let's briefly go ahead and talk about exergy. If you don't mind, why don't you define that and then explain why it's a relevant concept in space heating? Well, it's not only is it a relevant concept in space heat, but it's a relative concept to the world of sustainability. And I, you know, Chris, I think ultimately at the end of the day, when we get judged, <laughs> that we'll be judged on our exergy efficiency rather than our energy efficiency. And so exergy really is a study on what is the maximum capacity of work that we can do with the conversion of energy. So Let's just start out with some real basic concepts so that the audience 
can get a basic understanding, and then then we'll start talking about how that relates to conditioning people in spaces and buildings. Okay. So when we talk about, let's take an example. Let's take a 25-pound sledgehammer, and that's pound in a finishing nail. The 25-pound sledgehammer is an industrial tool for a non-industrial application of putting in a finishing nail. In fact, we could have pounded in probably 100 finishing nails with the energy that we use to lift up the sledgehammer and then pound that small little <laughs> nail into right. the wood, right? right? Right. So if you actually do an inventory of the person that's holding the sledgehammer, so food went into the body, it was converted into heat and muscle processes, and then there was an actual metabolic rate by lifting up the sledgehammer and then pounding it into the finishing nail. That total amount of energy, as I said, could have pounded in 100 finishing nails. We only pounded in one. So the exergy efficiency of that sledgehammer was terrible. In fact, it's like 3%. Now, if you had took appropriate finishing hammer, which takes less energy to pound in the finishing nail, its exergy efficiency, that whole activity would be much higher because you use the more appropriate amount of energy to pound in the finishing nail. And that principle, society actually have a really good grasp of that. They actually understand it. So we understand that we would not use the sledgehammer to pound in a finishing nail. We wouldn't use a combine to mow your lawn, right? right? We wouldn't hire the fire department to come with their truck to water your garden. Right. And we wouldn't use a backhoe to dig out weeds. Like Everybody <laughs> knows that those are industrial tools that should be used for industrial jobs. Right. And consumers and society also have a sense of what energy exhilaration is whenever they get next to somebody who's speeding or they go to the air shows and they see the aircrafts. Or they also have a sense of what I call energy constipation when they get in behind a slow moving vehicle. And so the vehicle that they're in, the car, has a much higher potential to go faster than the slow moving vehicle in front of it, but they can't. So they get this sense of being constipated. That's a mm -hmm. sensation of energy constipation. So society <laughs> understands that's, that. that's hilarious. I've never heard that phrase <laughs> yeah. before, energy constipation. I love yes. it. <laughs> so, so society has a sense of what's right and what's wrong, except when it comes to buildings. So let's sort of take that understanding of what's an appropriate use of energy and what isn't, what's an industrial level of energy, what's a non-industrial application. And then let's look at how that applies to, and that's taking an example of a furnace or a boiler. And when we take natural gas that's in the gas line, if it's underground, it's going to be at ground temperature. So let's just say the gas in the gas line is you know 50 degrees Fahrenheit for an example. Yeah. As soon as we turn it to a flame, all of a sudden that 50 degree gas now becomes 3,700 degrees. Right. At the burner. Now, for a furnace, we're trying to heat the air up coming through the return air. Let's just say it's 70 degrees Fahrenheit, and we want to send it back into the space at, a, say, 110 degrees. So we're looking at what is the temperature we need, which is 110, and what is the source temperature that we're using, which is 3,700 degrees. And now people should begin to understand that that's an industrial grade temperature for a non-industrial grade application. Mm -hmm. 
You're using super high heat to produce a very low amount of heat that you actually want. Right. And so it's not so much heat as it is temperature. So a super okay. high temperature as to a really low temperature. Right. And so the question then we ask is that, okay, well, how then do we define that from an exergy perspective? So what we'll do is we'll say, okay, well, what could we do with 3,700 degrees Fahrenheit? Well, we could take water. We could turn it into steam. We can use that steam to generate power through a turbine. The turbine is going to produce condensate, which we can take that condensate, and then we can use that condensate to heat things like domestic water, pool heating, other kinds of industrial processes that don't need 3,700 degrees but might need something else. And then we can gradually extract that temperature down through a series of cascading heat exchangers till we get to you know, whatever, say 150 or 160 degree water temperature, which we can use then to heat 70 degree air to 110 degrees. Hmm. And if we did that, then we would have really high exergy efficiency. But we don't. We just take the gas, we ignite it, we turn it into 3,700 degrees, it goes up the chimney, and what we're left with is 110 degree air coming out. And as a result, we have very low exergy efficiency. And we can actually put numbers to that. And this is what a lot of people have a hard time understanding is that, okay, yeah, but you know, my furnace is 97% efficient and that's true, but that's a combustion efficiency. It doesn't describe the work that could have been done with the 3,700 degrees. Uh -huh. Just like the sledgehammer, we could have pounded in 100 nails, but we didn't, we pounded in one. Right. So what could we have done with the 3,700 degrees? A lot more work than what we're doing. So even though a device could be 97% efficient on its combustion side, from an exergy efficiency, it's actually more like 7 or 8%. And this is where society really needs to understand the significance of this, is that when it comes to non-renewable resources, like gas, most of the hydrocarbons, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Like in other words, if we take a cubic meter of gas and we convert that to 3,700 degrees and we just simply use it for heating air, we can never put that 3,700 degrees back in. It's gone forever. Right. And so this, when we talk about sustainability, which is really a philosophical discussion, what we're talking about is we're actually preventing future generations from creating industrial grade temperatures. We'll always have a need to take steel, iron ore, and convert it into steel. We'll need temperatures for other industrial-grade processes, power use, this type of stuff. But once that cubic meter has gone from being an industrial-grade temperature to a non-industrial application, we can't get it back. Mm -hmm. It's not like the sun or the wind or oceans or geothermal or any of these types of more renewable photovoltaics, the solar thermal type of stuff. Those sources of energy are more in line with the energy that we need for houses. So, for example, let's take a hydronic heating system. Hydronic heating system in a high-efficiency home, we could easily heat that home with 85, 90-degree water temperatures. Well, a solar thermal system is easily producing water temperatures of 220 degrees, 230 degrees Fahrenheit. So that temperature of 230 is far more appropriate for waters that would say 80, 85 degrees, then say the 3,700 degrees of the combustion system. Uh -huh. So in those cases, the solar thermal is far more exergy efficient in comparison to say the gas furnace. Gotcha. Then we can take systems like 
a heat pump system. It could be air-based or water-based or ground-based. It doesn't really matter, but the heat pump itself requires electricity. Well, if we could generate that electricity with photovoltaics or some renewable system to drive the heat pump, to take the ground temperature of whatever 50 degrees Fahrenheit, 45 degrees, and convert that into, say, you know, 90 degree water temperatures, then we have an incredibly high exergy efficiency. You know, somewhere probably approaching in the high 50s to 60%. Okay. Which is really good. I mean, that's incredibly good to be able to get that kind of efficiency. And the reason why is because, and I'm sure over the amount of episodes that you guys have discussions about entropy. Uh, a little bit, probably not as much as we ought to, but yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so entropy is basically a measure of disorder. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are usually at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode subscriptions are also available. It's like subscribing to your favorite magazine or newspaper, but we prefer to think of it as buying us a pint once a month as a way of saying thanks. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And I want to welcome the students and educators out there who have been writing to inquire about our educational discounts. Nothing could make me happier than knowing that this show is reaching ears that are eager to hear it at a price they can afford, whatever their circumstances. Because although we do need to pay our bills and can't afford to just give the show away, and although I refuse to allow the corrupting influence of commercialism to creep into it, the whole point of this enterprise is to make all of us smarter, better informed, and more effective in our respective efforts to tackle the threat of climate change and try to build a better future. So if you're a student or an educator who is passionate about energy transition, but just a little short on funds, shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So please join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. A new report from a group of independent analysts entitled World Nuclear Industry Status Report appears to have sounded the death knell for the worldwide nuclear industry. I don't deny that I liked it partly because it's in full agreement with the perspective on nuclear power that I've offered in this podcast, but I also like it because it's extremely detailed and empirical work. The report, billed as perhaps the most decisive document in the history of nuclear power, runs 267 pages with over 1,000 footnotes and painstakingly documents everything one could hope to understand about the global nuclear industry, including retirements, new builds, costs, construction times, operating lifespans, and so on, including focused sections on specific countries, nuclear contractors, utilities, and next-generation technologies. And, spoiler alert, it concludes that small modular reactors are unlikely to play any major role in future power generation. 
A foreword by S. David Freeman, a former general manager of several large American public power agencies, is unflinching, saying, quote, the debate is over. Nuclear power has been eclipsed by the sun and the wind. These renewable, free fuel sources are no longer a dream or a projection. They are a reality that are replacing nuclear as the preferred choice for new power plants worldwide. Listeners who still hold out hope for the future of nuclear are strongly advised to check out this report, but I will say that I don't expect it to change many minds. As Freeman observes, the nuclear debate took on the tone of a religious debate long ago, and in my personal experience, today's vigorous nuclear supporters are essentially indistinguishable from a religious cult. They believe in nuclear because they believe in it, and no amount of evidence will dissuade them from their belief. C'est la vie. Item 2. This summer has brought an astonishing barrage of news about new types of electric vehicles that I didn't expect to exist for many years, if ever. See the show notes for all the details, but these vehicles include... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.